This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Our great God and Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for your faithfulness to your people. Lord, as we consider our own lives, we see the, the shifting nature of our own hearts. We realize how lax we are in our own commitments. We realize how far short we fall of the faithfulness that you have shown in your covenant. We are grateful, O Lord, that where we have been faithless, you have proven ever faithful. We are grateful that of all the promises that you've made to your people, not one of them has fallen to the ground. We are grateful that this morning, in a world of such uncertainty, uh, we are able to rest in your sure promises. Uh, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we continue to study those promises, as we continue to study uh, the covenant that you have made for your people, uh, that you have given to your people, that you've described in your word. Uh, we pray that you would enable us to understand your truth, uh, that through it you would get glory to your name, and you would prepare each of us for more fruitful service uh, in your kingdom. I do all of these things for the glory of Christ's name we ask. Amen. All right, well, I um, was aware that the, the, the semester was uh, moving along, and um, it was, uh, I was reminded of that last week, and uh, so we're going we're gonna to try to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, I'm committing the uh, standard teacher error of Spending a lot of time up front and then cramming everything in at the end, but um, hopefully I have been awakened to the timeline early enough to not uh, shortchange the rest too much. But anyway, we're going to try to uh, move along a little bit more quickly. If y'all are concerned that we're only still with Abraham at this point in the semester, hopefully we'll uh, make up some some time. But uh, we are uh, for at least this first hour going to finish up with Abraham. Uh, last time we had uh, stopped, we were in Genesis chapter 15, and we had said that in Genesis 15, God gives Abraham, or Abram at that point, two different revelations. Um, in the first instance, he gives a verbal revelation, which we saw last week. And then secondly, the thing we want to consider here at the beginning this week, is that God also gives Abram an enacted revelation. Uh, to put it, put it simply, God in Genesis chapter 15 undertakes a formal covenant inauguration or ratification ceremony. Uh, we already saw last week uh, that you know, in the descriptions in Genesis 15, uh, Abram has prepared a sort of a, an aisle down the middle of three slaughtered beasts. Uh, there's three animals that he's cut in half, uh, then two sets of birds that he hasn't split, but he's also laid them over against each other. So there's this sort of aisle between slaughtered animals. And the question pretty naturally arises, you know, what on earth is Abram doing? Uh, some of you all probably have an idea of what he's doing from previous classes and studies, but uh, to, the, to most folks it's 
pretty mysterious. What in the world is Abram doing with these animals? Uh, now, thankfully, we, we don't have to look outside of the scriptures to find out exactly what it is that Abram's doing. Uh, if you turn to Jeremiah, or at least take note of Jeremiah chapter 34, we find there information that illuminates what is occurring in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 34, at that point in Israel's history, uh, we learn about a covenant that Zedekiah, who was the king at the time, uh, Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and then the rest of the Israelite people under his reign, uh, they had entered into a covenant with God. Now, the particulars of the covenant aren't exactly critical this morning. It had to do with uh, Hebrews or with Israelites having Hebrew slaves. Uh, but the particulars of it aren't overly important. Uh, what is important for us this morning is to realize that Zedekiah and the Israelites had entered into a covenant with God, and then they had transgressed the covenant that they had made. Uh, and in light of the transgression of the covenant, God has some pretty stern words for Zedekiah and the Israelites. You find those in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 20. Uh, in light of the fact that Israel had made this covenant with God and broken the covenant, God has this to say to them, beginning in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. Uh, the Lord says, And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. Now even just from the, the description that's given there, it's pretty clear that what is being described is something exactly like what we find described in Genesis chapter 15. In verse 18 of Jeremiah 34, God refers to the Israelites cutting the calf in two and passing between the pieces of the calf, precisely as Abram has done with the three different animals in Genesis 15. Uh, the Israelites have cut this calf in half and they've passed between the pieces. Now, if, if you've read Robertson on this particular issue, you perhaps recall uh, that Robertson is of the opinion that the Israelites didn't literally pass between the pieces. He says that uh, what occurred was something like the blood sprinkling ceremony from Exodus 24, uh, that it was a kind of representative of passing between the pieces. He doesn't seem to think that the, the Israelites formed sort of a conga line and went between the pieces of the, of the calf. Um, but Dr. Currid, in his commentary on uh, Genesis is of the opinion that the Israelites did, in fact, literally pass between the pieces of the calf. And it seems to me that Dr. Currid's interpretation is probably the, the better one there. There's no reason in Genesis uh, or in Jeremiah 34 um, to not think, uh, or, or to think that the, the Israelites didn't literally pass between the pieces. Um, uh, ev you know, everything that Jeremiah says there leads us to believe that the Israelites did, everyone, all the groups that are delineated there in verse 19, all of them lined up and processed through uh, 
between these two pieces of the split calf. Uh, and because of the fact that they've done that, because the Israelites have slaughtered this animal and passed between the halves of it, and then had broken the covenant that they were making, they all are going to die. Uh, in fact, God says that the flesh of the Israelites who had broken this covenant would feed the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Uh, they had made a covenant by passing between these pieces. They had transgressed the covenant, and therefore uh, they would die, and their flesh would be food for the animals. Now, what had happened, to make a long story short, is that the Israelites had taken an oath of self-malediction, or a self-maledictory oath. Uh, by striking the covenant and passing between the pieces of the animal, the Israelites were acting out the declaration that if they were to break the covenant, what had befallen the animal would then befall them. It's by walking between the pieces they were saying, if we break the covenant, may we be as this animal is. And as God makes clear there in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20, since they had broken the covenant, they in fact would be as the animal was. They would be slaughtered and their, food, uh, their flesh would be food for the animals. Uh, this self-maledictory oath is seen to be uh, incredibly important and powerful uh, by processing through the, the slaughtered parts of the animal uh, the man making the covenant is declaring that if he breaks or fails his covenant obligations, he will be slaughtered just as the animal through whom he passes has been slaughtered. Now, this self-maledictory oath is a, or was a very common part of covenant-making ceremonies, both in the Scriptures, as we see here from Jeremiah, and also outside of the Scriptures and just uh, general covenants of the time. In fact, it's the, this particular practice that seems to have spawned the language of cutting a covenant, or karat berit, that we've uh, seen before, the language that speaks of the inauguration of a covenant. Uh, when a covenant is made, it's cut in the sense that the, this animal is split and the self-maledictory oath is taken. So what's going on, you know, to take what we see with more clarity in Jeremiah 34 uh, and look back at Genesis 15, what's going on in Genesis 15 is that Abram has made all of the preparations for a self-maledictory oath. He's gotten the animals, he's slaughtered them, he's laid them against each other, he's prepared the aisle down the middle. Uh, he, is, he has prepared for a self-maledictory oath. And then in Genesis 15, verse 17, after God has made all the preparations uh, for this oath, he then sees something appear. Uh, Genesis 15, verse 17, speaks of a smoking oven and a burning torch. As you all probably realize, what Abram is seeing is a theophany. It's a, a, vis a, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Uh, it's strikingly similar to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness in the Exodus. Uh, God is appearing uh, in the imagery of this smoking oven and a burning torch. And this theophonic presence of God appears to Abram, and then he, meaning God, God passes through the pieces. God himself walks the aisle of self-malediction. And by doing that, pretty clearly, as we've seen from Jeremiah, 
God is declaring that either He will keep His covenant promises, either He will fulfill the covenant, or He Himself will die. Obviously, Abram doesn't walk the aisle of self-malediction. He sits off to the side and watches. Uh, The fulfillment of the covenant rests entirely upon God. He's the only one who's taken this oath. Uh, God guarantees unilaterally that each of His promises will be fulfilled. In fact, there in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 15, uh, the Scriptures explicitly say that God here cut a covenant. Uh, Karat berit is used. Uh, God cuts the covenant with Abram. Uh, God is is solemnly guaranteeing that all of His promises will come to fruition. Now, if you remember from last week, the exchange that had set the scene for all that occurs in Genesis 15 had been Abram asking for assurance. Assurance from God first that he would actually receive the promised seed, and then, particularly here with the ceremony, uh, Abram asking for assurance that he would receive the land that God had promised. So the entire exchange had begun with a trembling old man asking for assurance that God's promises were sure, and in response to that request, God has given Abram this visual Uh, this visual confirmation that God's promises are as certain as God Himself. If God's promises end, then God will end. Uh, That's the the power of what God is telling Abram uh, here in this ceremony. So you can see pretty clearly that the overwhelming emphasis of Genesis chapter 15, in fact, you might even say the only emphasis of Genesis chapter 15, is placed upon God's sovereign gracious initiative in the covenant of grace. Uh, in, this partic- in this instance, in his uh, covenant specifically with Abram. Uh, as you take into consideration all of chapter 15, whether it be Abram's initial question pertaining to the seed or his later question pertaining to the land, uh, in both instances, it's really hard to conceive of someone being more devoid of positive involvement than Abram is. All that Abram's really doing is asking questions to be assured. Uh, Abram is doing almost literally nothing. Um, the faith even that Abram shows in verse 6 uh, even you know, is, is pretty clearly shown to be a faith that has been given to him by God. Uh, the overwhelming emphasis in Genesis 15 is on God's gracious sovereignty within the covenant of grace. So as you can see, if you begin your consideration of Genesis 15, or of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, as we saw last week that some do, it's clear how you end up with a view of the Abrahamic covenant that pretty drastically minimizes any sort of responsibility for Abram within the covenant. If this is the, the starting point of the covenant, uh, it's starting on a note of profound divine sovereignty. Uh, that then can shape the way that all of the covenant is viewed. I mean, if you remember, we looked last week at how uh, sometimes people start their consideration of the covenant uh, with Genesis 15, uh, but we said that it's uh, probably better to begin our consideration in Genesis 12, where not only uh, is God's sovereignty shown, but also man's uh, response, man's responsibility is also highlighted as well. Certainly a, a secondary uh, response and uh, obedience but one that's present nonetheless. Uh, certainly that the emphasis on any sort of response or responsibility from man uh, is, is not really found here in Genesis 15. 
Um, but any, any questions about Genesis 15? Before we keep moving. Um, in, in, in Genesis 15, you get that overwhelming emphasis on God's uh, sovereignty, uh, God's the, the unilateral nature of the covenant. Um, we've said that God's covenant with Abram is a covenant in which Abram and then all of God's people know both blessing and responsibility. And in Genesis 15, the emphasis is almost entirely on that blessing. But then when you move to Genesis chapter 17, which as we've said, that's another key passage or key portion of Scripture in our understanding of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, When you move to Genesis 17, you find that 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 emphasis is shifted. Uh, If Genesis 15 had largely emphasized uh, the blessing that Abram receives, Genesis 17 almost equally strongly emphasizes the responsibility that rests upon Abram within the covenant. Now, as you probably can imagine, you can't really move straight from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17. Uh, Genesis 16 pretty obviously comes in between. And it's important, I think, in shaping uh, the way that we understand Genesis 17. Uh, In Genesis 16, if you are familiar with the flow of Genesis, or if you're able to glance down at your Bible, uh, Genesis 16 records what is oftentimes considered to be uh, perhaps the greatest faltering of Abram's faith. Uh, rather than trusting in the Lord and waiting upon the Lord to fulfill his promises, Abram seeks to fulfill God's promises through his own initiative. Uh, God had promised Abram that he would give him a seed, that it wouldn't be uh, a servant in his house, but that it would be a, a son of his own body. Uh, and in six, chapter 16, Abram takes it upon himself to essentially try to acquire that son. Uh, he fathers a child by Hagar, his maidservant. Now, we certainly need to note that you know, from, from beginning to end, this is a sinful act by Abram. Uh, it can be far too easy to let our seminary knowledge of the customs of the time and the morality of the time cloud our absolute declaration that this is a sinful act by Abram. Yes, other people did practice polygamy. Yes, it was accepted at the time culturally for uh, men to take their take concubines and servants and have fa- uh, father children by them. Uh, but biblically, what Abram does here is uh, an unalloyed sinful act. Uh, back in Genesis 2, at the foundation of marriage, we saw that uh, marriage and the procreation that occurs within marriage was supposed to be between one man and one woman. Uh, we see that even... There in Genesis 2, you even see that when marriage occurs, two people become one flesh. Uh, There's no room in the biblical conception of marriage and procreation uh, for this sort of practice, regardless of whether or not uh, the culture might condone it. So what Abram's doing here is uh, abjectly sinful. Uh, He's seeking to bring about God's will through his own sinful actions. Um, In fact, in verses 1 and 2, of chapter 16, you see that even Sarah uh, was complicit in this. In fact, she seems to be almost the driving force of it. She suggests it, um, and Abram's willing to go along. So, Genesis 16 casts a very negative view of Abram. Uh, he is, he's received extraordinary assurances from God in chapter 15, but the very next chapter, 
he seems to be faltering in his faith in those assurances. He thinks he has to pursue uh, the fulfillment of God's promises rather than resting in God's fulfillment of them. So when you get into chapter 17 of Genesis, uh, you again find yourself uh, in a, a context of Abram's faltering faith. Uh, you've again been made mindful that if this covenant is to have a positive result, it will rest entirely upon God. Uh, the covenant has been of his gracious institution, uh, and if it is to be maintained, it also must be maintained by his grace. Uh, that's the, the mindset that's driven home by the time you get to Genesis chapter 17. And when you get to 17, uh, God appears to Abram again. Uh, Abram uh, clearly is in need of God's power and grace, and, Abram, or, and God comes to him in verse 1. In fact, it's uh, noteworthy, I think, in verse 1 that, of chapter 17 that God reveals himself to Abram as El Shaddai, or Almighty God, or God Almighty, depending on how your translation renders it. Uh, it's the first time that God uses this particular name for himself in the Scriptures. Uh, it goes on to be a, a pretty common name in the patriarchal narratives. It then afterward becomes relatively rare. Uh, it, it seems to be particularly tied to God's actions at this point in redemptive history. Uh, and God seems to be emphasizing the fact uh, that he is able to do the impossible. Uh, he's able to do uh, things that seem undoable. He's able even to bring a child to a man who's 99 years old. Uh, you see in verse 1 that Abram's 99 by this point. Uh, so God appears to Abram. He indicates his power even in the way that he names himself. And he also says something a very striking in verse 1 of chapter 17. In verse 1, he says, I am Almighty God, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, in that one verse, there are two elements that can pretty easily be distorted uh, to engender a wrong view of the covenant. Uh, the first thing that can be fairly readily misunderstood uh, is what God means when he calls on Abram to be blameless. Uh, we need to understand with some clarity what God means when he calls on Abram to be blameless. Now, the, the word in the Hebrew that uh, is used is tamim. Uh, it's a, a word that speaks not of blameless in the sense of being sinless um, or... Uh, moral, it, it doesn't have the, connotation, the moral connotations of sinlessness, uh, but rather the meaning is something more like complete or whole. Uh, God isn't calling on Abram to be sinless. He's calling on Abram to essentially be a man of integrity, uh, to be single-hearted in his devotion to God, to have his allegiance be to God and to no one else, uh, to have his faith rest in God and in no one else. You know, in chapter 16, as we saw, Abram had pretty clearly manifested that he was not single-hearted in his devotion to God. He wasn't single-hearted in his trust. And in chapter 17, verse 1, God is calling on Abram uh, to be single-hearted in his devotion to God. Uh, in a word, God is calling on Abram to be obedient, uh, to not have other things, other commitments uh, pull him off from the course of obedience. God is calling on Abram to render obedience. That's what he means, or that, that's what's meant 
by Abram being blameless. Not that he has to be utterly without spot and sinless, but that he needs to be obedient. Certainly, obviously, perfect obedience would be sinlessness, but God isn't calling for that standard. He's calling for Abram to be obedient. That's the first thing that we need to to realize there in chapter 17, verse 1. The second thing that we need to realize, or that we need to be clear about, is that if you... If you read the, the verse in the English, it can seem as if God is saying that if Abram is obedient, then he will make a covenant with him. Uh, it says, again, you walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. It can seem as if the striking of whatever covenant it is that God, uh, to which God refers that the striking of that covenant is contingent upon Abram's blamelessness or his obedience. Now, if you, if you think about it, if you've been reading Genesis up to this point, you know that's not the case. Uh, you know that God already is in a covenant relationship with Abram. Uh, he already has promised to multiply Abram's seed, which is the, uh, the promise that he reiterates there in verse 2. It's pretty clear if you're familiar with the context uh, that God here isn't talking about inaugurating a new covenant, uh, but rather he's talking about um, confirming that covenant based on Abram's obedience. Uh, he's not making a new covenant, he's confirming a covenant that already exists. Uh, you know that just from the overall context of the passage. But that fact is also strengthened and made uh, when you look at the verse in the Hebrew. Uh, In Hebrew, uh, verse 2, there in uh, Genesis chapter 17, uh, begins, uh, the the first word in the verse is ve'etana. My Hebrew pronunciation is not world-renowned by any stretch. Um, But the ve'etana, and it's a a call imperfect of the verb natan. Now, if you remember when we uh, talked about the different ways that berit can be used uh, with Hebrew verbs. Uh, you have karat berit, you have uh, hakim berit, and then the third one that occurs less frequently than those two, perhaps, is natan, God giving a covenant. Uh, God isn't establishing a covenant in the sense of making it for the first time. Rather, he is, in a sense, re-giving a pre-existing covenant. Uh, even on the, the terminological level, it's clear here that God is speaking to a covenant that already exists, that he is, in a sense, pressing on Abraham afresh. Um, God is promising not to give a new covenant based upon uh, Abraham's obedience, but rather through Abraham's obedience, he's going to confirm to Abraham a covenant that already exists. He's going to confirm the covenant that we've already seen in chapter 12 and chapter 15. Uh, Through Abram's obedience, God will confirm to him this covenant. Now, in verses 4 through 8 of Genesis 17, uh, you find God initially uh, reiterating to Abram the covenantal blessings that he's promised to him. Uh, These aren't uh, new for the most part. Uh, But of of particular, uh, it's noteworthy that in verse 5, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Uh, He gives him this uh, sign of his commitment to him. And then in verses 7 through 8, 
God enunciates the Emmanuel principle that we've mentioned to Abraham, uh, that he will be God to him uh, and to his children after him, that he will be God to them and they will be his people. Uh, God enunciates this Emmanuel principle that stands at the heart of the covenant and that really uh, summarizes uh, the power and the force of the covenant. So in verses 4 through 8, God uh, reminds Abram of the blessings that are his in the covenant and through the covenant and uh, by doing so, you know, presses on Abram or Abraham again uh, the blessings that are his, the blessings that God will give. But then in verses 9 through 14, God presses on Abraham his responsibilities within that gracious covenant. And God has made clear that the covenant's gracious, it's sovereignly initiated, but he also then presses on Abraham his responsibilities. It's interesting to note there the, the change in language. Uh, in Genesis uh, 17, verse 4, God had begun by saying, As for me, and then he had articulated the blessings that he would graciously give to Abram, Abraham. And then, but then in verse 9, God begins with, As for you. And then he articulates uh, the responsibilities that rest upon Abraham and the covenant. Uh, there's this sort of two-way... Uh, relationship of as for me, as for you. There are two sides in the relationship that God is describing here. Uh, in uh, his little booklet, if you've read uh, that portion, John Murray refers to this uh, element or this principle as mutuality. He says every relationship involves mutuality. There's a, a back and forth uh, that's a necessary component of any relationship. Uh, including a covenantal relationship. In fact, uh, Murray says that this mutuality is the very essence of a relationship. And furthermore, Murray says uh, that the more intimate a relationship is, the more mutuality it involves. The closer a relationship, the greater the mutuality. And in fact, that's true. I mean, you, you see that in your own relationships. If you think of the difference between uh, your relationship with your wife uh, in your relationship with a good friend, there's an enormous amount of difference. Uh, your relationship with your wife is much closer, much more intimate, and it also involves much more mutuality. Uh, your wife has a much greater demand on your attention and your allegiance, uh, much greater demand on your obedience, if you want to put it that way. Uh, the greater the closeness of a relationship, the greater the mutuality. And that mutuality doesn't indicate any sort of conditionality. It certainly doesn't in a marriage. Uh, it's not as if your relationship with your wife is works-based rather than grace-based simply because you have a mutual commitment to her. Um, it's not as if it's works-based and your relationship with your friend is grace-based. Uh, instead of that, the, the mutuality that you find in a marriage is an indication of the intimacy of that marriage. Uh, the, the strength of the mutuality indicates the strength of the relationship. And the same sort of uh, dynamic is being seen here with Abram or Abraham and God. As we're seeing more and more of this covenant that's made, uh, we're also seeing more and more of the mutuality that it brings. Uh, Murray brings this out pretty well, I think. Um, the, the mutuality that we find in the covenant and the fact that this mutuality doesn't at all uh, point towards some sort of conditionality, but rather it's an indication of the strength and the intimacy of the covenantal relationship uh, that we're having opened before us between God and Abraham. 
Now, uh, certainly there's, you know, Murray omits uh, there any discussion of contractual elements to the relationship, and by leaving it as a purely uh, relational arrangement, he leaves himself open to some, some error there, so he, he's not to be followed absolutely. He's maybe to be followed in what he says, but not followed in what he doesn't say, if you see what I'm See what I mean? Um, but what what he what he says about the relational aspect here is seems to me to be pretty much spot on. Uh, the the mutuality that we're seeing in the covenant. Um, and and when you get into if you look more closely there in verses nine through fourteen, uh, you know this is the obviously the, the portion where uh, Abraham's side of the mutuality is being uh, detailed. And in there, God gives uh, a good deal more specificity to how the mutuality of the covenantal relationship will manifest itself in Abraham's responsibilities. Uh, essentially, you know, to condense verses 9 through 14, God tells Abraham that he is to be circumcised and that he is to have all the males of his household circumcised. Uh, you know, God, uh, Abraham is called on to render uh, obedience to God, and this is the specific form at this point that it's to take. Now, when you think of circumcision, uh, you most often think of it as a sign and a seal of the covenant. Um, think of it essentially as a sacrament. And now in, in a couple of weeks' time, we do still have, have enough time that we're going to uh, talk specifically about uh, sacraments as signs and seals of the covenant uh, after we've looked at some material in the New Testament, we'll look at an overall view of sacraments and uh, covenant signs uh, throughout the covenants. Uh, so we'll save most of the observations about circumcision as a sacrament till that point. But even outside of those sorts of concerns, uh, there are a couple of important things at this point uh, in the, uh, the unfolding covenant of grace that we need to bear in mind that are brought out by this circumcision. Uh, first of all, when we think about the, the circumcision that God is enjoining here, we need to bear in mind what it is that God's doing. Uh, back in verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 17, uh, we had seen, uh, to refresh our memories, we had seen that God was confirming His covenant with Abraham to Abraham. So in a word, God here is giving Abraham assurance. Uh, he had given him what would seem to be abundant assurance back in chapter 15, uh, but I believe it was Robertson who pointed out that that assurance doesn't essentially last beyond the phase of revelation. Uh, you know, when the, the smoking pot and uh, burning torch were gone, the assurance visually was gone. Here, God is giving Abraham an assurance that doesn't go away, uh, an assurance that he sees even in his flesh. Uh, it's as if God is taking all of the covenant, all of the uh, blessings that come to Abraham because of it, all of the responsibilities are expected from Abraham because of it. Uh, all of the covenant is being taken and bound up in this one sign, and this sign is being given to Abraham. Uh, it's given as an assurance that God's covenant is certain and it's secure. And partly because of that, because of the fact that this uh, that circumcision is given as a sign of the covenant, uh, you see in verses 9 through 14 that the sign becomes emblematic of the whole covenant. 
Uh, there's the, the very closest of connections in verses 9 through 14 and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, the very closest of connections between the sign of circumcision and the actual covenant that that sign represents. Uh, just here in this one passage, in verse 10, God says, This is my covenant which you shall keep. Then skip a little bit. You shall be circumcised. Uh, the covenant is the circumcision. Then in verse 13, it's even clearer. Verse 13, God says, My covenant shall be in your flesh. Uh, the circumcision is the covenant, and the covenant is the circumcision. Uh, there's the very closest of identifications between the covenant sign and the covenant itself. And it's largely because of that, because of that close identification, uh, that you get the very strong injunction in verse 14. In verse 14, God says that if a male child isn't circumcised, he is to be cut off from the people of God. If he hasn't received the sign of circumcision, if he hasn't received the sign of the covenant, then he has broken the covenant. Uh, there's that, the, the, the connection between the sign and the covenant itself is so great that to not receive the sign is to not receive the covenant. Now certainly that's not to suggest that the sign itself has any sort of inherent covenantal or salvific power. Uh, we'll see more about that in a minute. Uh, there's no power in the sign. It's not a ex opere operato sort of uh, function to the sacrament. Uh, but rather, we need to remember that, it's, that rather than the, the, the sign itself having power, the sign is representing the covenant. The sign is representing the promises that God holds out. It's representing the responsibilities that the covenant enjoins. Uh, by rejecting the sign, uh, by rejecting the sign of the covenant, the person in question is rejecting the covenant. He's declining the promises that are offered. He's rejecting the responsibility uh, that is involved. He's rejecting all of the mutuality bound up in this covenant. Uh, by rejecting uh, the sign, he's rejecting the covenant. In a sense, uh, the sign of the covenant and the rejection of that sign puts a visible face on an invisible reality. You can literally see a man rejecting the covenant sign. Uh, what you can't see with your eyes, uh, what you can't see in his heart, you can see in his flesh. Uh, you can't see an absence of faith. You can see an absence of the sign. Uh, the covenant sign puts a visible face on man's responsibility within the covenant and upon his rejection of that covenant if he rejects it. Uh, the, the, the covenant uh, we're seeing pretty clearly here is entirely of God's grace it's a gracious covenant. It's founded on God's uh, sovereign initiative. But in God's people, that graciously initiated covenant both requires and elicits responsibility. It requires and it elicits obedient response. Uh, the sign of the covenant is making that clear to us. Uh, the sign is gracious. It's been given by God. Uh, there's no way that being circumcised merits redemption. It's not a a meritorious act by man. It's been given by God, and it's entirely of His grace. But likewise, it must be obediently taken. Uh, this covenant brings both sovereign, divine, gracious blessing and responsibility. Um, even in the sign, we're seeing that this Abrahamic covenant is a covenant in which God's people know both blessing and responsibility. Um, and 
as we recall in that, in the covenant sign that God is giving here, he is confirming his previous covenant with Abraham. This isn't some uh, arrangement exterior to the covenant of grace. Uh, This is a confirmation of the covenant that we've seen in chapter 12 and chapter 15. Uh, This is a confirmation of, and therefore it reveals the nature of, uh, the overarching uh, covenant of grace. Uh, God is confirming that covenant, and he's confirming it by this sign. Um, now, the, uh, it seems to me that the, uh, the imperative uh, of the covenant of grace, the imperative of rendering covenantal obedience that is uh, highlighted uh, by this sign of circumcision is probably most viscerally seen in Exodus chapter 4. You know, chronologically, much after Genesis chapter 17, several centuries later. But uh, we see there in Exodus chapter 4 uh, the importance that's highlighted, uh, or the, the importance of uh, human responsibility uh, that's highlighted by this covenant sign. Uh, in Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, uh, verses 24 through 26, uh, you, at that point in the, the scriptures, uh, the, uh, the Lord has appeared to Abram, or to Abram, to Moses, uh, getting my names mixed up. He, God has appeared to Moses. He's called him to return from Midian to Egypt to lead the people out of bondage. And Moses is undertaking that journey. He's traveling. He has with him his wife, Zipporah, and his firstborn son, Gershom. And in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, you find a rather mysterious uh, narrative there. You're not going to deal with it in detail, but essentially uh, what occurs there is that the Lord, at that point Moses has failed to circumcise his son. He hasn't had Gershom circumcised. And the Lord literally comes after Gershom to kill him because he hasn't been circumcised. Uh, He hasn't received the sign of the covenant, and he very literally is going to be cut off from the covenant. He's going to be killed. Uh, Now, in that instance, uh, Zipporah, Moses' wife, acts quickly. Uh, She circumcises Gershom, uh, and the Lord relents and spares the child. But the the episode shows very clearly uh, that there is responsibility, there is mutuality within the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, The covenant... Uh, You you can't say often or strongly enough that the covenant is entirely gracious and sovereign. Uh, It has nothing to do with man's merit or deserving. But all the same, there is an importance within it on human responsibility. Uh, The covenant is graciously given, it's graciously maintained, but it also elicits responsibility in God's true covenant people. Uh, We see that... uh, it seems to me very clearly with this sign of circumcision. Um, uh, This command to circumcise is a real command. It has uh, real consequences if it is uh, failed. Uh, God's covenant with his people very clearly uh, includes both blessings and responsibility. Now there's also one uh, further note that you should... uh, keep in mind about this sign of circumcision, of this sign that so clearly 
represents and sets forth the covenant. Uh, you notice back in chapter 17 of Genesis, in verses 9 through 14, again, where the, the sign is being described, you notice that God commands Abraham to circumcise all of the males of his household. Um, not just his physical descendants, but all of the males of his household, his servants, uh, men he buys, uh, children of servants, uh, all males in his household, eight days or older, are to be circumcised. Now certainly that has a great deal of importance in our understanding of the sacraments, but we'll leave you know, the, the sacramental implications of it until our looking at sacraments in a couple weeks. But for the time being, uh, we just need to note two things about what this means, not for the sacrament, but for God's covenant that the sacrament is representing. In the first instance, this application of the sign to all of the men in Abraham's house uh, makes clear to us that this covenant sign does not have some sort of inherent covenantal or salvific power. Uh, everyone was circumcised. In this instance, specifically, Ishmael was circumcised. Um, Ishmael was circumcised before Isaac was even born. Uh, clearly, God knew that Ishmael was not the child of promise, but yet still he had him circumcised. Um, now, that, that particular point starts to get into the doctrine of the sacraments. Um, but that, that aside, what it's showing is that uh, this covenant sign is emblematic of the covenant, but it doesn't bestow the covenant. Uh, it reflects the covenant relationship, but it doesn't affect the covenant relationship. Uh, in other words, you have to find the meaning of the sign elsewhere. It's not an effective agent, uh, but it is rather a representing agent. It's not uh, creating the covenant, it's representing the covenant. Uh, and that shapes how we understand uh, what's going on. Uh, we, we see that the, that the sign is not given to save people, but it's given to represent the covenant, and therefore we're justified, you could say, in making observations about the covenant from the sign, because what it's doing is representing the covenant itself. Uh, the second thing that we see here about the sign uh, is, or that we learn from the sign, is that even at this relatively early point, God has a spiritual, uh, you could say pan-ethnic people in view. Uh, that gets back to what we discussed last week, uh, that even when God had promised Abram a seed back in Genesis chapter 12, he was speaking most fundamentally not of an earthly seed, but of a heavenly seed, not an ethnic group, uh, but a spiritual people. Uh, very clearly here, the sign of the covenant, the, this representation of the covenant, is applied not just to Abram's, Abraham's physical seed, but to everyone in his household. Uh, the people of the covenant are not a people of ethnic descent. Uh, they're a people of the promise. And very clearly here, that was God's intention uh, from this point, you know, even before this point, obviously. Uh, but from this point, it's becoming increasingly clear the sort of people uh, that God has in view. Um, but overall, the, 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 the weight, I guess you could say, of Genesis chapter 17 uh, is to press upon us the role of Abraham's responsibility within the covenant. Uh, chapter 15 had shown us God's sovereign blessing. Uh, in chapter 17, we get a stronger note of Abraham's responsibility. Uh, specifically, 
he is to administer circumcision. He's to be circumcised, and he's to circumcise all the males of the covenant, uh, males of his household. But more broadly, uh, this circumcision that's described in verses 9 through 14 is indicative of and emblematic of the larger call to obedience in verse 1. Remember in verse 1, God called Abram to be blameless, to be obedient. And then here in verses 9 through 14, he gives a specific, a specific obedience that's to be rendered, but it's kind of a part of the whole. God is calling Abram or Abraham uh, to an overall obedience. Uh, Abraham is to be blameless. And, one, uh, um, and the, the implementation of circumcision is one part of that. Uh, this obedience isn't creating a covenant with God, uh, but it is reflecting God's gracious covenant with Abraham. Uh, it'll assure Abraham of the reality of the covenant. It'll manifest Abraham's participation in the covenant. Uh, it's uh, bringing assurance to Abraham. Um, now, it seems to me that this dual nature of the covenant uh, with Abraham and the, what it shows us about the covenant of grace, the dual nature of involving both God's sovereign blessing and man's responsibility, kind of holding both together, is important to bear in mind uh, whenever you preach or teach on the covenants. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that even with Abraham, God's relationship with his people is one of mutuality. Uh, the relationship doubtlessly is sovereignly and graciously initiated. It includes unmerited divine blessings, but it does also include responsibility. Uh, it includes, quite simply, obedience from God's people. Uh, God's relationship with His people always has been that way. It still is that way, and it always will be that way. Um, that's critical, it seems to me, for us to remember. As Christians, it seems as if our hearts are constantly the scene of a pitched battle almost between legalism and antinomianism. Uh, we're constantly fluctuating between the desire to save ourselves by the law and a desire to free ourselves from the law. Uh, the, the antinomian side of our hearts uh, constantly wants to cry out that obedience has no place in God's gracious covenant. That since God is gracious, we don't have to be obedient. Uh, since faith makes you righteous, you don't really have to render righteous works. Um, it seems as if a, a, favorite, a favorite one is to think that since God forgives sin, uh, if you'll just think of all your favorite vices and call them sin, then God will forgive them without you having to give them up. If you'll call them sin, God will forgive them, and you can just keep on doing them as long as you're willing to call them sin. Um, there's not... Uh, a responsibility uh, that follows upon God's grace. But we see with Abraham that all of this is wrong. Uh, Abraham certainly knows unmerited, gracious blessing, but that blessing brings, anterior to it, responsibility. Uh, the blessing brings the responsibility of obedience, even when that obedience is hard and unpleasant. Uh, certainly it was for Abraham, uh, whether the uh, the leaving his home or any of the, the obedience that followed. Uh, if, you, if we today, if you are of Abraham's seed, you doubtlessly are without merit of your own, but you're not without responsibility. Uh, you don't have merit, but you do have responsibility. And you have the responsibility of obedience. 
uh, the impossibility of doing anything good outside of God's grace doesn't make his people's obedience meaningless. Uh, God's gracious power and blessing doesn't nullify obedience. It compels obedience. Uh, grace makes obedience possible. Uh, that's what we see with Abraham, uh, with, his, uh, with the, the developing view that we have of his covenant with God, or God's covenant with him, rather. And it applies, likewise, to we today who are the seed of Abraham. Uh, we're saved by grace, but we're called to obedience. And we can't divorce the one from the other. Now, uh, overall, it seems to me that gives us, uh, hopefully, a, a fairly thorough and representative view of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the covenant is set before us in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, we see the divine initiative and the divine blessing of the covenant being emphasized. In Genesis 17, we have the responsibility incumbent upon Abraham being emphasized. And uh, all of it together gives us a view of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, overall, we see that as God's eternal covenant of grace uh, is coming to clearer expression in and through the covenant with Abraham, uh, we see that this covenant of grace is a covenant in which God's people know both blessing and responsibility. God's people are given His unmerited grace, and then because of that grace, they're called to the responsibility of obedience, uh, meaningful obedience. Uh, that seems to be the uh, increasingly clear view that we receive of the covenant of grace through Abraham, uh, both, both sides of this mutual, uh, gracious covenant. Do we have any questions on... Abraham, any particulars of it or something I have not addressed that would be too strong to say that Genesis uh, fourteen in particular made out all that is covenant breaking by Abraham Abraham or would that simply would that would that be too strong? Um Yeah. Well, I think it, um, in a sense, it depends on what the the force that you're putting on covenant breaking. If you if you if you're thinking of covenant breaking in the sense of transgressing the expectations of the covenant, so to speak, then I think certainly uh, chapter sixteen is a case of covenant breaking. I mean, Abraham is, uh, I guess, Abram at that point is. Doubting God's promises, he's uh, breaking the creation ordinances that are have been reiterated in Genesis chapter three, um, both with marriage and procreation. He's very clearly, I think, transgressing the expectations of the covenant. So it is covenant breaking in that sense. Uh, but if you if we're thinking of covenant breaking in the sense of breaking the covenant so as to render it null and void, then it does, it's not of that sort. Uh, if for no other reason, then we've seen and you had just seen in chapter 15, right before he had done all these things, that the covenant would be kept not because of Abraham's faithfulness, but because of God's. Um, if, a, you know, if you want to, in, in a manner of speaking, if Abraham had passed between the pieces of the slaughtered animals in chapter 15, Genesis 16 would have brought Abraham's death and I guess the need for a new covenant. But since it was God, uh, taking the responsibility of fulfillment upon himself, 
Abraham's breaking of the covenant is, a, is sin and is, uh, he's culpable for it, but it's not destructive of the covenant. Yeah, um, well, I think the uh, a dispensationalist view I th- you know, probably would uh, at least at least mention you know the fact that there in verse thirteen it's referred to being an everlasting covenant in the flesh. Um, but I think when by, by doing so they it's just one instance of their faulty hermeneutic of n- not understanding the. The development of the covenant. Um, it, it is a, it is a sign of an everlasting covenant, um, and it is given in the flesh. But as we'll see when we look at the sacraments, when you get into the the New Testament in Colossians two, Paul makes clear that the same eternal covenant that in the form of shadows was put in the flesh is now held out and applied in the waters of baptism. So the you know there, they would be right to in a sense, to point out that here uh, the everlasting covenant is represented in the flesh, but they would be... Isn't it, yes, yeah, what's eternal is not the representation. What's eternal is the, the covenant itself. Okay. Anything else? All right, we'll break for chapel and come back. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.